They say water is the most significant substance on earth. You can imagine the PBS special, right? With Morgan Freeman's voice, because got to have that. Water, our most valuable resource, vital for life, able to bring down mountains and change the shape of the earth. It strengthens and sustains life. There's nothing more fundamental than water for life as we know it. But one thing Morgan Freeman and your local PBS station won't mention is the fundamental act of water baptism in the Christian life. Last few weeks, we've been in a series on the fundamentals, the means of grace. And what we mean by that are the fundamental ways God uses to communicate himself to us, to grow us, to strengthen us, to sanctify us. And when it comes to Christian practice, baptism is one of these fundamental means. So far, we've looked at two uncontroversial ways, right? The Lord, or the Word, and prayer. And this week, we dip into troubled waters. Thank, thank you, thank you. A lot more water jokes where that came from. But honestly, baptism is an act meant to bring unity, as we'll see. But, but it's been a focus of division throughout church history. I mean, there was a time when people were tortured and killed because of their different views on baptism. And I'm going to say, I don't think anyone should be tortured or killed because of their view on baptism. And honestly, I do believe there is room for legitimate disagreement. And within our denomination and within our local church, there's room for difference and disagreement without breaking fellowship. But nowadays, it's not like we disagree. Rather, we just don't care. There are less baptisms than ever. Too many believers today consider baptism a nicety rather than vitally important to the Christian life, as well as the life and health of the church. Yet, just looking at the, the Bible, you, you can't ignore the importance of baptism. Chiefly, baptism comes to us in Jesus' commandment in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some of the very last words of Jesus are to baptize. I mean, it's been common to think baptism, it doesn't, doesn't save us, so does it really matter if I'm baptized or if our church cares about it? And it's true, and I'll affirm multiple times, baptism does not save you. It does not regenerate you. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. In one of the most critical passages of the New Testament, the Great Commission, Christ's charter, his mission for his church, we're commanded to baptize. And we should take it seriously just because of that. I mean, this is part of what it means for baptism to be considered an ordinance uh, or a sacrament of the church. Next week, we'll talk about the second one, the Lord's Supper. But ordinances are practices mandated by Jesus, which visibly and tangibly express the gospel. They're what Church Father Augustine called visible words. They communicate to us the gospel found in Christ. And they're not only visible, but they're tangible. Practices we participate in. And these ordinances, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, confirm and nourish the believers. Right? That's ordinances. And, and the early church, they, they really took Jesus' words as too important to ignore. Throughout the book of Acts, 
you find again and again people believing and being baptized. Additionally, nearly every New Testament author talks about baptism in some way, some fashion. I mean, it's safe to say that the Bible has no category for an unbaptized believer. Baptism is fundamental to the Christian life. But why? I mean, why would Jesus command it? Why is it so critical to the Christian life? Why, how is it a means of grace to spiritually strengthen us in our walk of discipleship? Because, you know, the truth is, I'll talk about some logistics, but the truth is the Bible doesn't talk a lot about the logistics of baptism, but it talks a lot about its meaning for our life. And that's what I want us to focus on. And the big idea this morning is that baptism is beneficial to the Christian life because baptism communicates a new you. Baptism communicates a new you. Now, what does this mean? Well, I want to unpack that a little bit. If you'll turn to Romans 6, verses 1 through 4, this will be kind of our key passage for today as we explore the benefit of baptism. Now, in chapter 5, right before this, uh, Paul has clearly taught that we, that they have been justified by faith and that God's grace is so expansive it can cover any sin. But this raises a question, and I assume it's a question Paul's had a dozen times. Look with me as Paul states this question and answers it in Romans 6, 1 through 4, and if you would please stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So the question is, if God's grace is so expansive, do my actions really matter? And honestly, Paul's a little bit more dramatic than that, uh, speculating, would it actually be best if I kept sinning? That way, grace would also increase. And the answer is no. We're all clear on that, right? The answer is no, but listen to his reason. This is the essence of his reason. You've been baptized into Christ Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, how can we stop continuing in sin? What's the key to real change? Consider your baptism. What's the implication, right? So what's the reason behind that reason? Baptism, it seems, fundamentally changes how you think about yourself. And Romans 6 is going to help us think about that. It fundamentally changes how you think about yourself and how others should think about you as well. Baptism then communicates something very important. You are not the same person you used to be. You have been made new. Now, by new, I don't mean like blank slate new. In our day, we can get the impression that new means to have a blank canvas so I can do whatever I want to do. But according to Scripture, this kind of a new, it's more like putting on new clothes. I mean, in Galatians 3.27, Paul is going to talk about baptism again, and he's going to say, those who have been baptized have put on Christ. Being new isn't about being whoever you want. 
It's about putting on Christ. One scholar then writes, baptism signifies that the Christian life involves putting on someone else's identity. Here, you are redefined as someone who has clothed themselves in Christ. I mean, notice it. It it also, baptism isn't simply about putting on a new attitude or a new virtue, but rather putting on another person. Baptism, at its core, is about communicating our union with Christ. You are putting on Christ's identity. Friends, the Christian life isn't about trying to live some moral life by our own efforts. Rather, it's about manifesting in our lives the very life of Christ. That we might be able to say, along with Paul, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Our new identity in Christ is at the core of baptism. I mean, and if we just look at the simple act, we we can get this sense. I mean, the act itself is a participation in the key scenes of Jesus' life. We image Christ's death as we go under the water. We're buried with him under the surface. And we rise with him to new life as we come out of the water. In baptism, you personally participate in the foundational gospel narrative, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And in doing so, this narrative shapes your entire life. Now, now we know that the act of baptism is not what saves us, right? I mean, it doesn't regenerate us. It is the Holy Spirit who washes us and unites us with the Father and the Son. But, you know, throughout the New Testament, faith leads to baptism. Baptism always assumes faith. And so often, when we come across baptism passages, the writer's usually referring to the whole conversion experience, presupposing even the gift of the Spirit. These elements, they happen at different times, but they're so tightly connected that for the New Testament authors, when you talk about baptism, you're, you're talking about the whole conversion package. It's like the bow on the top. Baptism, then, symbolizes or communicates our identity in Christ. But it's not an empty symbol. It's a symbol that that works in us. A visible word that communicates with tangible or liquid words the truth of our participation in Christ. Now, one analogy we might consider is a wedding ring. You know, does the ring in itself make you married? Does it unite you? to your husband or your wife? You'd say no. I mean, it's the vows that make the marriage. But that doesn't mean a ring is insignificant. It tangibly marks a change. A ring communicates a new identity, a union. And in doing so, it communicates it to us daily and to others. And that's why it's so significant. Baptism then communicates It's a communication of God's invisible grace that we have been united with Christ. You are a new you. And throughout our life, the Holy Spirit uses our baptism to strengthen us and to help us turn from sin. Now, there are at least three participants in baptism who communicate this new you in Christ. There's the believer who responds in faith and allegiance to Christ, the church community that confirms that profession, And most importantly, God who communicates our union in Christ. And I want to use these three participants to kind of talk more about 
the significance of baptism for our life. So first, baptism professes faith. In Acts 2.37, the people who heard the gospel were cut to the heart. And they asked the apostles, what now should we do? Peter's response was to repent and be baptized into Christ Jesus. Baptism has always functioned as a believer's public response of faith and allegiance to Jesus above all else. I mean, in this way, it kind of works as an instrument of surrender, right? Where we submit our lives to Christ, promising to conform our life to his own. Now, there are lots of signs that people use to submit to Christ. Some have altar calls, uh, some raise hands, they sign a card. But baptism is the biblical and fundamental act of obedience to, and faith. This one act, if you think about it, just has ongoing significance. Baptism becomes a stake in the ground. You can always look back to this act of obedience And friends, in an age where we're taught that our way is the only way that really matters, that my ideas are the only thing that matter, that I'm king of the world, baptism is a dramatic declaration to the world, but also to our own stubborn hearts. When we remember our baptism, we remember we have committed to submit ourselves to Christ. We are not our own but belong body and soul to Christ. But, now, this was a really short point, but it raises an important question. If baptism is a response to faith, uh, what about infant baptism? Unfortunately, you know, the New Testament doesn't give us a lot of the logistics of baptism, and so there can be a lot of diversity. Uh, One common practice of the church is paedo-baptism, or infant baptism. Now, there are several different kinds of infant baptism. Some believe uh, that it removes original guilt. Uh, others believe that it imparts salvation to the infant. We would, we would reject both of those views based on uh, what I've said earlier. But there's another view. You might call it covenant infant baptism. Uh, and this view deserves more careful thought. Uh, for most, and this is going to be a wildly oversimplification, so sorry. Uh, for most, covenant infant baptism really has to do with the covenant of grace operating the same in the old and the new covenants, right? So in the same way that circumcision was a sign for adults and for infants as entrance into the new covenant community, baptism now is that sign of entrance into the new covenant community. Thus, uh, you know, in, in covenant infant baptism, they look forward to the promises of baptism to be confirmed one day. Again, that's kind of the gist, oversimplification. I hope, I hope I did it justice. All right, now, at First Free, we do not practice infant baptism, but rather practice believer's baptism, as I kind of described earlier. Uh, this simply means that those getting baptized must first confess faith in Christ. And the primary reason for this is because faith almost, is almost always explicitly connected to baptism in the New Testament. And there are no explicit instances of an infant being baptized in the New Testament. Again, oversimplification, it's kind of the the gist. And I I should add that most everything that I'm talking about this morning 
might be affir- could be affirmed by a believer's Baptist as well as many covenant infant Baptists. And as a denomination, we admit that Bible-believing people don't land in the same place. And we believe that these two views are not worth splitting over. So what's that mean? <laughs> well, here's what it means at First Free. While we don't practice infant baptism or covenant infant baptism, if a person was attending who had already been baptized in this covenant infant way, we would not insist on the rebaptism as a believer. Again, oversimplification, just kind of the gist. There's a lot more that could be said about this, and we would love to dialogue more with you about that um, in, 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 the, in the questions that you might have, whether myself or, or Pastor Josh, um, one of us would love to do that. But what I'm wanting to emphasize in this point is that baptism, baptism reveals, it's this confession or profession of faith. But second, baptism reveals a new family. In both Romans and Colossians, Paul closely links baptism and burial. And I find this super significant. I mean, because in the same way that you can't bury yourself, you can't baptize yourself. Uh, Unless you're, there's a YouTube video of a little kid who's, I think dad is just really long-winded, and so the kid just dunks himself uh, because he's so tired. But you're not supposed to baptize yourself, right? (laughs) Baptism always involves entrusting yourself to someone else, a new family. Baptism reveals to us that our spiritual growth, it's never a solitary pursuit, but is a community effort. And there are at least two parts to this. First, the church confirms your faith. Now, since you can't baptize yourself, a believer can only ask to be baptized. And as we saw, the responsibility of the church is to baptize. This means The church confirms the profession of faith, baptizes, and welcomes them into the new family. And when done rightly, I find this to be just an incredibly important assurance to the believer. I mean, do you ever have doubts? Question this Christianity thing? Am I on the right track? Am I doing the right thing? Do I really believe? When you do, remember your baptism. Remember that others confirmed your profession of faith. Of course, it, marks persi- it needs persistence, but, but that is a moment where others stood beside you and it should give you confidence in your walk of faith. Now, from the church side of things, this is a significant responsibility. I mean, in baptism, the church confirms faith, but it also commits to walking alongside the baptized. And you're now part of this family. Therefore, a church wants to be confident in a person's profession of faith. Now, it does not have to be sophisticated, but it does need to be sincere. And of course, we can't be absolutely sure, but we can seek confidence. It's why for us, you know, it's why for us, this isn't one of those services where we bring out the tank and we line them up and, you know, start dunking them. It involves a process. It involves, you know, a conversation, an interview. One other implication of this is that we don't baptize kids under the age of 10. And some of you may have known this already, but I want to say up front, this is an arbitrary line. There's nothing magical about being 10, although my daughter does think that's when you become an adult. But (laughs) there's, there's nothing inherently magical about being 10. 
It's not in the Bible anywhere. Uh, you know, and I want to clearly say we are not saying that children under 10 cannot have genuine faith, that they're not, you know, born again. We're not saying any of that. The line is simply a wisdom principle that gives the church greater confidence in confirming genuine faith. Again, much more we could talk about with that and would love to talk with you about that and process that with you. Um, but it's, as we talk about baptism, it's a part, of, uh, a part of how we practice it here. And it can be confusing sometimes, so we'd love to chat more about it. But there's a second point. The church not only confirms your faith, but baptism creates the bond of family. Paul mentions baptism about half a dozen times throughout his letters. And nearly every time, it's in conjunction with, as a reason, his converts should get along. It's like when I tell my girls, get along because you're family. You know, I'm pointing to something about them that should produce their unity together. In Galatians 3.28, there's a big controversy going on with with, uh, circumcision and Jews and Gentiles. And and we just read about uh, where those who are baptized have put on Christ. The verse right after that, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Baptism and oneness in Christ. Ephesians 4, Paul is, he's hammering the bond of peace. And he says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. I mean, there are a few more, but you kind of get the idea. Paul pointed to their baptism as a way of saying they belong to one another and need to get along and care for one another. And I want you to catch the logic of this. I mean, Paul is not saying create unity by, you know, the the goodness of your fellowship together. It's deeper than that. The oneness of our fellowship isn't something we work to achieve, but something we work to manifest in our realization of our common union with Christ. Now, Jesus mentions this very clearly in this relationship in John 17. He says, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. Our union is intrinsically tied. Our union with one another is intrinsically tied first and foremost to our union with Christ. Therefore, baptism marks belonging to a church primarily because it marks belonging to Christ. As far as Paul was concerned, Uh, whenever his converts witnessed a baptism or remembered their own, they should be reminded of their union with one another. They should be reminded of, of of their responsibility to one another. We can't walk alone in the Spirit. Our lives are bound up with one another because of our union with Christ. And in an age of division like ours, this truth is so key. It keeps us from, from the many things of this world that co- corrode and divide us. Because one thing is true, you have been united to Christ and therefore are united with one another. We are a new family. And baptism marks this, signals this, this union. Our job is to manifest it within our life together. All right, third point, and this is a longer point. 
verse 4 ends with the promise of new life, and that's what I want us to consider because it's key to God's communication of union with Christ. Uh, A friend of mine once asked, what other service, like baptism, like a baptism service, has friends and family present, uh, music, a short message from a minister, involves the physical lowering of a body by others? What kind of a service? It's a funeral. He said, baptism is the happiest funeral you will ever attend. Baptism promises new life, but new li- but to have new life, you first must die. Let's return to Romans 3 and 4 to see this reality. Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In Scripture, Becoming a Christian doesn't simply mean becoming a better, more moral person, but becoming a Christian first means you die. What do we mean by this? First, we identify with Christ's own death. Paul, is, he points to a past event of Christ's death and says that when Christ went to the cross and died, somehow we were there with him. That the punishment of ultimate death, which awaited us, was taken on in Christ's death. He took our place, he bore our sin, so that we might be forgiven and washed. Through baptism, then, God is communicating our union with Christ's death, and in it, promising the forgiveness of sins. Baptism doesn't forgive you of sins, but it reveals a promise that God has made to you when you have faith in Christ. And not just forgiveness, but that Christ's death has broken the power of sin. We no longer need to be slaves to sin, for in Christ we have died to sin. A few verses later in Romans 6, 6, Paul says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. We are free to abandon its hold on us because our old self is dead. We do not live under the reign or the power of sin, but we live under the reign of the one who is alive, Christ. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian who lost his life in a Nazi concentration camp, famously describes it this way. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The cross is laid on every Christian. And the first Christ's suffering, which every man must experience, is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. How many of of us are really living this call to die with Christ? How many of us have abandoned the attachments of this world? We want forgiveness, but we want all the things of this world as well. Baptism reminds us that our old self is dead. We do not need to be enslaved to sin. Sins are to be abandoned ultimately, not because, not ultimately because they're contrary to God's commandments, but ultimately 
because they are contrary to our identity in Christ. And it's this identity communicated in baptism that death and sin may no longer, need no longer rule over you. Which leads us to the promise of a new future. Paul goes, in, uh, goes on in verse 5 to stress that if we have shared in Christ's death, we will surely be like him in resurrection. Baptism, it's a promise that everything that's true in Christ, both his past and his future, will be found in us because of our union with him. I mean, it's sort of like this. Uh, imagine a man became wealthy through tremendous effort, just tremendous effort. He had, uh, you know, all, he was so wealthy, beautiful cars, house, you know, whatever it means to be wealthy. And then he got married. How did his wife become wealthy? Was it through effort? No. Through marriage, through a union. Baptism is a symbol of that union, of that wedding, the, uh, the wedding ring of that union. That means Christ's resurrection, eternal life, the favor of the Father are all promised to the one who has been united to Christ. And baptism communicates this promise. This should be a tremendous hope, a hope that can withstand all the troubles of this world. Your baptism should remind you that all the riches of Christ are now found in you. You have a glorious future. But baptism isn't just about a future promise, but it's about moving that future promise even more into the, into the present. The promise of a new way even now. Romans 6, 4 says that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in newness of life. Your old self is dead. That is your former self under the slavery and the power of sin. You have a new identity. And, and chapter 6 in Romans, it's all about how to walk in this new life. Right? I mean, that starts the whole thing. How do we turn from sin? The answer that Paul has isn't a bunch of steps. It isn't a huge process. Paul says the secret is to remember your baptism because in it, you know that you are united to Christ. Christ lives in you. If you're struggling with sin, remember your identity is found in Christ. You are not the same person. Your sanctification it's not a property that you have, but a property of Christ who is present within you. Spurgeon quotes this story about St. Augustine in one of his sermons that I think describes this really well. Um, Augustine, as you might know, he had uh, a little bit of a problem. He, he liked women a little too much. Um, and after his conversion, he was walking down the street and he came across one of the women who he used to spend time with. And as she approached him, she said, Augustine! And he turned around and ran away as fast as he could. And she called after him. She said, Augustine, it is I! But then, turning around, he said, but it is not I. The old Augustine is dead, and I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. Fleeing from sin at its core, is about knowing who you are. 
Now, of course, we have lots of questions. I, I mean, if that's the case, why does it take so long? Why does it take so long to change? Why is it so difficult? Why does it not happen sometimes? And it's not that we're to gain perfection, right? Philippians 3 reminds us that we will not attain perfection in this, in this life, but we still strive towards it. We still strive after Christ. I mean, the truth is Satan is at work. And while our status and our identity may have changed, we are no longer slaves to sin. Sin is still present. Sin is still present. Many of us have wounds of sin that continue to pull on us and drag us down. They make us forget who we are. They make us forget that you are truly redeemed, that Christ is alive within you. Change doesn't happen automatically. It takes time. I mean, look with me at the end of this section in Romans 6.11. Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. At the end of all of this, where he teaches on the significance of our union and the power to, to, um, to flee from sin, one of the tasks we have is to continually remind ourselves to remind one another of who we are in Christ. And one of the key tools we do to do that is to remember our baptism because of what it communicates about who you are. That sin no longer has power over you. And this should be, this should be both a comfort and a motivation. I mean, on the one hand, you should take comfort and not be crushed by the unrealistic expectations of perfectionism, trying to be good on your own, on your own effort as some autonomous person. While at the same time, it should be a great hope and motivation. I mean, the possibilities of our future and what we might be and do, they're no longer limited by our own effort or goodness. But you are now defined by Christ's righteousness at work in you. Remembering our baptism declares the promise of this new life. And its limits are limitless. Well, what more should we say? I, I hope by the end of this you can see the necessity and the benefit of baptism to the Christian faith. Uh, throughout Scripture, you really don't find a lot of the logistics of baptism, the things that really get us bent out of shape, but you find a ton of unpacking its meaning for life. Baptism, when you let it communicate to your soul, your union with Christ, it has the power to completely transform you. Baptism is truly beneficial to the Christian life, and when we, we ignore it or we downplay it, it becomes, it, we do that at a detriment to our own spiritual growth as well as the health of the local church. For those of you who maybe haven't been baptized, perhaps God is urging you to seek baptism. Talk with us after service. We also have a, an online way to begin this conversation. For some of you, for some of you, it might be a first step of faith in Jesus. You may need, even this morning, to repent and believe in Jesus. 
to begin this walk of submitting yourself to him, of manifesting your union with him. For others of you, you know, you may have been walking, for, walking with Jesus for a while, but for some reason or another, uh, you just haven't been baptized. Maybe hesitation, fear, whatever it might be. It kind of reminds me of those moments. I have these too often. I, I get to talking with someone and I can't recall their name. I should have asked them at the beginning of the conversation, but now we're like 10 minutes in and I'm like, I'm just too far into this to ask your name at this point. Some of you who've been Christians for a while might feel like you're too far in to this walk with Christ to get baptized. But it's never too late. Baptism might not be essential for regeneration, but it is foundational to the Christian life. And for all of those, for all of you who have been baptized, remember your baptism. Let it be a means of God's grace in your life. When doubts come, may it bring assurance. Remember how baptism unites you to one another, the people in the pews around you. How it calls you to know and to love one another. When you struggle with sin, remember your baptism. You have been united with Christ in his death and burial, death and resurrection. You are no longer enslaved to sin, but have freedom and power to live out Christ's righteousness that is at work in you. Your baptism is a means that God is using to grow you, to strengthen you. It's essential to the Christian life. May your baptism speak, continue to speak to you to communicate the truth of your union with Christ the new you. Will you please join me in prayer? Gracious Father, thank you for the gift of baptism. Thank you for a way to visibly communicate the truth that your life is at work in us, that our identity and our hope are wrapped up in you. I know I need this. I need you to speak to my heart daily, telling me that I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. Continue to teach us to remember our baptism that it may form a people after your own heart. In Christ I pray, amen.